Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Nightlight, everybody. So glad you could join us. I want to thank first Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. As always, the Native storytellers have a way of preserving history and cosmology that is so far and above the written word. It's amazing. If you look for Ken Quiethawk under Native Storytellers on, on the Internet, you will find him and lots of his CDs that, that show you how to preserve history in a more enlightened way and um, I highly recommend you check it out because it's a better way of of learning history and and remembering it than reading and memorizing from a book. Tonight I'm really excited. Um, I I have the jump on everybody almost. Um, Marco Vigato has written a book called The Empires of Atlantis, The Origins of Ancient Civilizations and Mystery Traditions Throughout the Ages. And by sneak peek, I mean it's not going to be out until January. But I had the pleasure of reading it, and I have to tell you, it's it's absolutely a book you're going to want to get and read because not only is it informative as all get out, it's a very easy read, and, and you flow through it, and you learn with every page. And you'll notice a lot of names of, of people that you've, you've seen on the show that, that, he's, that he quotes in there that he talks about as well. So it's kind of like a, a reunion on, on many levels, but it's also expanding interest in an area that all of us have been fascinated with since, since we first heard about it. Exploring more than 100,000 years of Earth's history, he combines recent discoveries in the fields of archaeology, geology, anthropology, and genetics with mystery teachings of antiquity to investigate the true origins of civilization. He establishes the historical and geological reality of Atlantis stretching all the way back to, get this, 432,000 years B.C., He traces the course of Atlantean civilization through its three empires, revealing how civilization rose and fell several times over this lengthy span of time. He shows that Atlantis did not vanish in one terrible day and night, 
but survived in a variety of different forms well into the historical era. He reveals how the first Atlantean civilization lasted from, from 432,000 to 33,335 B.C., the second one from 21,142 to 10,961 BCE, and the third Atlantis civilization, the one celebrated by Plato, collapsed in 9,600 BCE, after the, young, the younger Dryas Cataclysm. He examines the role of Atlantean survivors in restarting civilization in different parts of the world from Gobekli Tepe, Gobekli Tepe and Egypt to India, Mesopotamia, and the Americas. And yes, I said the Americas. He explains how they created colonies and outposts around the globe as evidenced by the colossal network of pyramids, earthen mounds, and other megalithic monuments they left behind. He shows how these monuments testify to the survival of a sacred science of Atlantean origin, and he documents the survival of the primeval Atlantean tradition through various secret societies into the modern era. Marco is an independent researcher who has dedicated the past 15 years to documenting the evidence of ancient advanced civilizations around the world. And it's a fascinating book. You're going to love it. So sign up and get it first. Welcome to the show, Marco. I'm so glad you're here. Marco. Thank you, Barbara. Oh, I, uh, I can like your first and last name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I am, I, I'm so excited about this book because, of course, Atlantis is a topic that, um, that I have been interested in for, gosh, decades now. And, I think that, that what is so exciting about your book that is that it, it, it appears that historians have tried to put everything that ever happened of any relevance at all to humanity happened um, right after the, the, uh, the um, Younger Dryas days, and nothing happened mm -hmm. prior to 9,600 years ago. I mean, you know, to 9,600 Right. BCE, so so it's you know at least at least people are shaking it up a little bit and acknowledging the fact that humanity has been around for hundreds of thousands of years. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And just uh, just as you say, uh, in, a, in a certain way, you can think of these younger dryas capitalism a sort of great reset of human history and civilization, um, and, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, uh, later, but the, the reality is that uh, these, uh, this cataclysm uh, was uh, uh, on, a, on a scale, on a truly um, planetary scale. Uh, it was uh, such a destructive event in human history that it really uh, was a breakwater between what happened before and what happened afterwards. So much uh, was uh, destroyed, so much was lost in the cataclysm, and as Plato says, uh, humanity had to start over again, like children afterwards. So I think that lots of what uh, our contemporary historians and archaeologists have been focusing on is really just uh, that uh, time after the cataclysm, really the last 10,000 years, but we still have very little information what happened before because so much has been lost, so much has been destroyed. Well, you know, when you go into things like the Great Pyramid of Giza and 
and the Sphinx. I mean, it's so obvious that they are older than everybody's trying to make them out to be. <clears throat> it just it boggles my mind that that they they aren't flexible enough to say, well, we've been around for hundreds of thousands of years. So of course, before ice ages and before cataclysms, and there, I, I know when um, Plato when when Plato was telling the story of his great great grandfather or whoever it was that spoke with Solon um, in, in the uh, in the Great Pyramid to the priest, the priest said to him, you know, oh, there have been many starts and stops. It's not just the one. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it, it's happened in history over and over and over again, and and because of mm-hmm. because of all the new stuff that's been going on recently, my fascination is right. is always with what happened before. I mean, there had to be a I tremendous amount before, and you've taken right. it we, and put we, it in. We, Go ahead. Yeah, we only know about the the younger Dryas cataclysm because that's the most recent one now that we that we know of. The reality is that mythical traditions around the world they talk about multiple cataclysms, multiple world ages. Um, of course, it's even more difficult uh, to go that far back in time, uh, but we definitely must uh, come to the conclusion that uh, there was there might not have been only one advanced civilization of prehistoric antiquity might have been multiple of them and they were destroyed and civilization was later reborn. It seems to be a pattern, doesn't it, that there's there's a society gets to a certain point in time and then everything falls apart and there's a cataclysm and they start mm-hmm. all over again. Right. It's, so it's sort of like, um, do you have children? Yes, yes, I do. I have two okay. children. So, so so there's this this uh tablet where you can scribble on it and then you raise it up and it erases everything and you can scribble again and you can raise it up and erase it and it feels like civilization has been like that that mm-hmm. um that these disasters these cataclysms usually come when society is in a place where it's deteriorated into um a, a type of society where where it's not as spiritual it's not it you know it's it there's there's war there's politics there's all sorts of things going on and it's it's almost like somebody said they're going the wrong direction you know we've got to destroy it and start again and and it, and it does it does make you wonder just how many times i mean you you've sort of put atlantis with three different time frames in which until it was it was mm-hmm. finally destroyed but my my well interesting question is how did Atlantis start? You know, you it, it, mm-hmm. it lasted for right. four hundred thirty two thousand years, but how did it start? Well, or or more, the reality is that uh, when you go that far back in the past, uh, the the archaeological record is very limited. Uh, and so yeah. that's why um, the approach to following my book is of drawing from uh, the esoteric tradition. Of course, it's, uh, um, the, the sources of the esoteric tradition are very different from the sources of archaeology, of, of factual science. It requires a very different approach. 
much more about uh, uh, comparing uh, different traditions or finding the commonality. Um, but uh, I think world mythologies and traditions at the end of the day they tell all a very similar story, which is remarkably similar across the world, um, across thousands of years, really. And these are stories that at the beginning of human history, some uh, um, what we could describe as highly uh, evolved uh, spiritual entities, uh, still immaterial entities, uh, incarnated uh, on Earth. So that if you think about a human evolution, Evolution, you have a, almost a dual evolution. On the one hand, you have the physical evolution of human beings, which is what uh, our modern sciences of biology and genetics have been following, um, going from uh, Homo erectus uh, to Neanderthal man to Homo sapiens. But this only covers uh, the physical aspect of human evolution. Um, when we think about uh, the spiritual aspect, uh, uh, what uh, all these uh, different esoteric traditions uh, around the world uh, tell us uh, is that uh, at some point uh, some uh, uh, spiritual beings manifested or incarnated on earth, uh, they took on human bodies uh, and uh, they created uh, basically the first human divine uh, uh, beings, hybrids. So that's also the story, for instance, that Plato tells of Atlantis when he talks about the uh, fusion of the human element and the divine element, uh, so that uh, this civilization of Atlantis was truly a civilization of demigods by by these standards. It was spiritual entities uh, within uh, human bodies. And, you know, I think what what I find fascinating is that in many places um, you bring in the Nephilim and mm-hmm. and, and the element that, that were they giants. And I know when I read um, um, Dr. Durrell did a, did a whole thing on the Emerald Tablets and, and of course, it was, you know, focused on Toth or Toth or Dehudi or who everybody pronounces mm-hmm. it differently. Um, but that at one time he talks about the little men and humans inferring that that, that he and, and others that, that were with him were, were giants. And and I, I've often had the feeling that, that a lot of the statues in Egypt were life-size rather than being, you know, just, ex, you know, extreme um, extreme statues just made to impress the world. And when you get to the, the, the construction of so many of these ancient sites, it, it would almost either have to have been giants or they would have had to have technology of some sort in order to lift the stones um, because the stone structures are the ones that we have to go back at and look at. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm personally much more skeptical about the idea of physical giants. I tend to consider all these metaphors, including the Nephilim, um, as well to, me, to be merely uh, symbolical of certain uh, reality, but not necessarily implying uh, like physical giants uh, existed in, uh, in antiquity. Maybe we bring up uh, these, uh, these subjects of the Nephilim. I think uh, this is another very interesting metaphor. In many ways, uh, it, uh, it mirrors, it parallels the story of Plato Atlantis, because also in the, in the book of Enoch, uh, um, to some extent also in the book of Genesis, uh, it's told uh, that uh, uh, the, uh, the the children, uh, the sons of God, uh, went uh, onto 
the daughters of men and created this hybrid progeny. So again, you can interpret these uh, in, a, in a literal sense uh, as uh, the, 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 the hybridization, really, of two different uh, human races, uh, or you can also take it uh, from a more spiritual uh, perspective as uh, uh, symbolizing, again, uh, the, the incarnation of some spiritual principle into human bodies. This is, again, a tradition you find throughout the world. You find it across so many different mythologies. This is something that I track in the book in very similar terms. You have this recurring idea that civilization was, in a way, a gift of the gods, in actually a quite, quite literal sense, meaning that uh, the, the, that sparkle that triggers civilization was only possible through the incarnation or manifestation of some uh, like spiritual, non-physical beings on this uh, on this plane. And then this is going to be like very, very controversial. That's why um, I, uh, I, I I put like uh, um, how can I say that? Like a, um, like a caveat, uh, almost like at the at the beginning of that section of the book, uh, saying that uh, again, like it's, this is something that it's very hard to prove scientifically. It might never be proven scientifically, uh-huh. but we have to be open to the possibility that there are immaterial, maybe multidimensional realities that interact with these. Uh, plane of existence, because this is what, for thousands of years, all kinds of esoteric and religious traditions have suggested. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah, I think it's, I, I, I look at history today, and I keep thinking, how can we leave messages for those that are coming in a thousand or two thousand years, as far as this is what we did with society. This is what worked. This is what didn't work. And you know, what have we learned? And you know, how do, how would we leave messages to to the species um, thousands of years from now? And mm-hmm. and it it made sense to me that that highly evolved cultures in the past would have been wouldn't would have been thinking about doing the exact same thing and i think the fascinating thing is that those messages have been left to us we just haven't interpreted mm-hmm. them yet right right and of course like messages can be transmitted in a variety of ways uh, um, on the one hand, uh, you clearly have all these different mythical, esoteric, and religious traditions uh, around the world. And that, again, the challenge there is to find uh, the common elements in these uh, traditions, which really points to like a genuine uh, like source, which I believe uh, was probably like a single source for all these different uh, world traditions and cultures. But then you also have uh, much more like physical and tangible messages uh, that were transmitted, uh, which I think is, uh, again, like another very common theme of uh, um, various, various theories, various ideas of a lost civilization that somehow managed to preserve some of its knowledge in different forms, be it through monuments, um, through um, inscriptions, uh, writings uh, that were made to survive the cataclysm and be recovered after that cataclysm, be it a flood, be it a cataclysm of fire or water, 
so that the future humanity might uh, uh, start over again. Well, yeah, and that's, you know, you do begin to wonder, you know, I know that, that you know, today that we have seed banks in, in the Arctic and, you know, trying to preserve things just in case there's a cataclysm that, that you know, life can be started again. And when you look at, at some of the, the hieroglyphs, some of the Sumerian materials, some of the, you know, in, in, in many of the, the, the his, histories of these different cultures, they all seem to have a, a, a similar stories about a flood, similar stories about mm-hmm. wise people coming and, and helping humanity to grow. And, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's Native American here or whether it's Egyptians or whether it's, you know, the, the, um, the, the um, Mesopotamians or, or Sumerians or whoever, there, there are stories and legends and, and the Greeks and the Romans. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. these stories have, have survived time. And mm-hmm. I have found that, that if there's meaning to it, if there's some symbology to it that, that is important for humanity to hold on to, um, they survive. And if there's not, they don't. And when you look at the, the histories and the mythologies that we've got, um, it, they're telling us something, and and it isn't just these are the myths of this particular culture. Aren't they interesting? They're telling us something. They're telling us about the Absolutely. planets. They're telling, you know. And I think what's fascinating, especially to me, is the astrological insight that they had so far back. And mm-hmm. absolutely, and, and it it just you know I've I've stood out and looked at the night sky from time to time, and I've thought. How could they possibly have figured all this out? <laughs> I mean, how could they right, even... Right, right. And in, you know, in a way, as I say, myth uh, is its own language, and that's a language that uh, uh, we no longer understand. So uh, there have been a number of seminal studies uh, on that, in, including uh, most famously Hamlet Mill by um, Professor Santillian and Fondetchen, where they talk about these code almost embedded in world mythology, they analyze the um, similarities that you find in myths uh, uh, from across the world, uh, literally from people who never had, uh, at least throughout documented history, any direct contact with each other. And yet you find exactly the same symbols used to describe the same things, uh, the same kind of uh, images. And many of these images have to do with the stars. So it's almost as if uh, throughout world mythology you have uh, an underlying uh, um, substrate uh, in a certain way that is common throughout uh, pretty much every culture on this planet. Uh, um, so the question is, where did this uh, like, um, foundation, in a way, where did this substrate originate? Well, it's just, it, it's always surprised me that if you look at, at Tiwakan, if you look at, at the Great Pyramid, if you look at, you know, a, a lot of these sites, I mean, um, my late husband and I did a whole series on the, um, um, we did a documentary on this, the secrets of the stones, the stone chambers that were in New England, mm-hmm. and how they were oriented to solstices and, mm-hmm. and such. And 
And you just sort of wonder, how did they know? How could they possibly mm-hmm. have known? Yep. Yep. And that means that they're, they're yeah, his, they had to have they had to have a history that goes way back to have I mean in order to figure even and they they even knew about the um, progression of the equinoxes and that's mm-hmm. that's what yep. twenty nine thousand years or, or so mm-hmm. so who figured it out right. Right, right. No, absolutely. I think you were spot on when you were talking about the precession of the equinox. And we find evidence of knowledge of precession from very remote antiquity, like long before supposedly um, people really had the the instruments or even the mathematical knowledge to uh, to to come up with an idea like that of uh, of procession um, and and then you have uh, like the testimonies of the of the classical authors for instance like Cicero like the great roman statesman uh, claiming that the mesopotamians babylonians had kept mm-hmm. archives of astronomical observations dating back over 470,000 years and of course like uh, that might be an exaggeration the reality is that uh, these observations must clearly go back thousands and thousands of years before the beginning of uh, recorded history. And uh, uh, procession is a, a particularly interesting subject because so many of uh, uh, different world mythologies incorporate uh, specific images related to the concept of procession. If it's not the images themselves, then it's specific numbers that are processional numbers that are related to this concept of the great year, and so one of the one of the key questions we also explore in the book is why procession was so important to ancient cultures. Why was it a knowledge uh, that uh, needed uh, preserving across uh, so many generations? The answer um, to which I come is that it was somehow related to the very idea of cosmic cycles of creation and, uh, and destruction. I think that there is much more to the procession of the equinoxes than just a wobble in the, in the Earth's axis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is a really something that has to do with much deeper cosmic cycles, which uh, maybe has this idea of the great year, the 25,000 um, period of, of procession, just a symbol of uh, something that has a much deeper meaning, a much deeper cosmological meaning. Well, when you even look at Stonehenge, that is supposed to be, well, it's not the oldest anymore. Gobekli Tepe has that that now. But but when you look at Stonehenge, and if if you if you want to go back and say, okay, the Druids were the ones at some time that that utilized Gobekli uh, that you uh, that used um, Stonehenge at that particular point in time. There was no written language, so everything had to be memorized. So without the written word, how was this information passed down? I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, it, it's, um, yep. you, you know, you, you <laughs> almost want to think, did, did they have crib sheets someplace? I mean, it, it's, <laughs> that that's, that's yep. a tremendous amount of, of very technical material, a lot of which I don't understand. But, but, you know, I I got the impression I understand what that is. 
Right, but, and we should uh, not overestimate, uh, underestimate, sorry, we should not underestimate how the power of the oral tradition, because the reality is that um, there are like works that are foundational for our civilization were transmitted through oral tradition for, for thousands of years. It's still like a practice. Now it's sadly lost in the West, but in the, in the East uh, up until a very recent time, so there was a, still like this practice of memorizing entire texts. Well, still, still like within, within the Arab world, many people like, Learned the, the, the Quran uh, by, by memory, and so um, again, like this is a, this is an art is largely lost now in the in the West. But uh, we should not underestimate uh, the power of oral transmission. So when you have all these myths uh, that sometimes they're told as fairy tales, but still they incorporate very specific symbols, very specific numbers, uh, these myths uh, can be transmitted for thousands of years. We uh, we we may be still like relating some of these stories as if they were just like myths and fairy tales, uh, without even the knowledge that they might incorporate incorporate uh, much more sophisticated and much more advanced information, which is, again, basically the whole theory, not the basis of the essay that was mentioned of Hamlet's meal, that the Mesa somehow is its own language. And uh, it's only our modern mindset uh, that makes us think uh, that myth is is just a fairy tale, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. to the ancients, that was not the case. Uh, myth was a language that could encode uh, very complex uh, uh, meanings, uh, maybe even equally complex as what we would convey today with a mathematical formula, uh, just in a different language that we do not understand. And because of the nature of this language, uh, this is something that could uh, be transmitted uh, over over thousands of years, uh, literally, with very little very little alteration. Is there a possibility that some of it was encoded into DNA? Is that something that that you know? Is that a possibility? Because, I mean, if you if you go back thousands of years, of course, they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have TV, they didn't have radio, they didn't have books, so that so that their their intellect, their their reasoning capacity, was focused on other things. Yeah, I think there have been many studies on this idea of genetic memory um, with, uh, unfortunately, like little conclusive evidence uh, um, of that. So I think um, it's still, still an open uh, question whether anything uh, like genetic memory really, really exists. Uh, um, so, uh, again, I'm I think I think it's a it's a possibility, right? Even even at the genetic level, some knowledge uh, could be like stored in a, in a certain way. Um, I think uh, if if you, if you believe uh, in the esoteric tradition, there are also many other channels that are clearly like not conventional, but uh, doesn't necessarily mean they're less valid. Uh, uh, like this whole idea of. Uh, uh, the Akashic records, uh, for instance, or like um, uh, altered states of consciousness as enabling to access a sort of a, like cosmic consciousness and uh, um, these, uh, this great repository of knowledge that transcends uh, space and time. I think that's that's a possibility, at least. That's true, and I, I never thought of it that way, but yeah. Uh, and, you know, you, you speak of enlightened beings who came in at each time frame to help 
kickstart the beginning of, of another um, spurt of, of growth and spirituality. And um, it, 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 to me, makes great sense that, that you know, there would, that there would and have been um, spiritual adepts or sages or whatever you want to call them that, that have been a, that have been here to guide, not not to direct, but to guide. And mm-hmm. in today's society, uh, I think at one point you talk about how they didn't come anymore. And mm-hmm. I, I I I think they're probably here, but nobody's listening. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, um, that's the view of theosophy and of a number of, of, of different mystery schools. There were these sort of uh, the initiators of mankind, that is, masters or sages, were the uh, original initiators of uh, culture and civilization thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, uh, but then as, as civilization falls into, into materiality, then uh, uh, this, uh, this contact is, uh, is no longer possible, or maybe even like the manifestation of, of these entities, uh, if you believe so, uh, is, is no longer possible. And so uh, effectively, uh, every, every form of, form of contact uh, gets, gets shut down. Uh, and again, this is, a, this is a concept, this is an idea that you find uh, um, among many, um, many, um, authors in the esoteric tradition is think about uh, like uh, Rudolf Steiner, René Guénon, and, and all the theosophists, they have this, uh, this idea that they, in a way like the linkage between modern humanity and these like these spiritual entities was somehow broken. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we I, I want to get back to Atlantis because um, when, you, when you talk about it, being 432,000 years in the mm-hmm. past. Um, or more. It, it, or, or more. Um, I, I, think, I think the important thing for people to understand is, you know, when we, we talk a long time, we talk about maybe 100 years or 1,000 years, but we're talking hundreds of thousands of years. So let's just go back to the very beginning of the continent, um, I don't think people understand how large it actually was. So let's go back to the beginning and explain how large that continent, and, and it wasn't just a landmass, it was collections of islands as well. So right. how large yes. was it? So uh, right now, maybe let me just uh, take one step back uh, as to uh, what is uh, my, my my idea, my hypothesis on the location of Atlantis, because of course you, you hear a number of very um, disparate hypotheses as to the location of Atlantis, with people claiming that it was the South Pole, it was in Antarctica, it was like somewhere in Africa, it might be even like uh, America. But uh, all, all the historical, well, not only the historical sources, all the mythical sources are adamant on the fact that Atlantis was an island or a landmass in the Atlantic Ocean. So that that's where we have to look for Atlantis. Right. Uh, I'm sure there were certainly a number of other like large islands, even island civilization that disappeared at the end of the last ice age. But the fact is that if they're not in the Atlantic Ocean, then it's 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 not Atlantis. Very very simply put. Now, uh, okay. very often we read uh, uh, that uh, um, 
the, the existence of a larger continental size, let's say, landmass in the Atlantic Ocean is a geological impossibility. Uh, but that, that very idea, it's, it's unproven. Uh, it's quite unscientific, actually, because you have plenty of scientific evidence to the contrary, to the fact that there was actually a very large uh, landmass in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, during the 1960s or uh, the 1970s, many studies uh, were conducted uh, on uh, the mid-Atlantic ridge. Um, unfortunately, not many of these studies uh, are now uh, very well known in the West. Uh, uh, Russian scientists uh, realized uh, many of these uh, many of these studies, but the, the conclusions uh, of those, and they talk about that also in the book, particularly the studies of uh, Nikolai Zirov, who was a, a Russian scientist and, uh, and a Swedish geologist, uh, René Malese, uh, they clearly point to the existence of a very large sunken landmass in the Atlantic Ocean. Basically, the model that they suggest, they propose, is that uh, Atlantis, and let's, let's call this landmass Atlantis, uh, uh, was essentially a basalt continent. So you have this big fracture in uh, the uh, Earth's crust right at the bottom of uh, the Atlantic Ocean where new land, uh, uh, new rock is constantly uh, being uh, born and being created from, from, from the depths of uh, the Earth. And so uh, much of that rock uh, is uh, basalt. So uh, what, what happens with uh, a rock like basalt is that uh, so long as uh, the pressure exerted uh, by volcanic activity is uh, uh, strong enough, uh, that will create uh, enough force to keep it literally afloat. Uh, however, as basalt cools down, it becomes heavier and then literally sinks in uh, uh, molten magma. That's, that's a model that was developed, uh, as I said, already in the 1960s, 1970s, uh, to explain how a basalt continent could potentially sink uh, in uh, the underlying uh, mantle uh, and therefore also like... Uh, the case of the Atlantic Ocean being submerged under um, the water over millions of years, because of, again we have to remind ourselves that the scale of these geological processes must be measured in the millions of years. However, there might be events that could accelerate uh, this process quite dramatically, and this is exactly what is just uh, might have happened uh, at the time of the Younger Dryas Catholicism, and possibly even earlier than that, when um, a number of uh, geological disturbances or events uh, of um, cosmic origin, like the impact of a large asteroid or comet, could have dramatically accelerated this process so that a process of thinking that would have otherwise taken uh, millions of years it was completed within the span of, um, in some cases, thousands of years, centuries, maybe even just years. Uh, um, as some of the geological evidence also suggests. So when we think about the, the sinking of these great Atlantic landmass, we, of course, do not have to think that it happened overnight. Um, there were different stages uh, which uh, are also described uh, in the esoteric traditions. So if we go back at the very beginning of Atlantean history, then yes, you do have a very sizable landmass that pretty stretched across uh, the entire length, or almost across the entire length uh, of uh, the mid-Atlantic ridge, uh, um, in, the, in the central 
Atlantic Ocean, uh, but then uh, over the course of hundreds of thousands and millions of years, this great landmass started sinking uh, uh, gradually, initially, they started breaking up um, the two large islands, uh, which according to the esoteric tradition were the islands of Poseidonis uh, to the north, uh, uh, also called Antilia, and Daitia to the south. And then the further fragmentation happened so that these uh, still sizable landmasses broke up into smaller islands, smaller archipelagos. And this is a process that continues to this very day. So they left remnants, uh, uh, in a way, of uh, these uh, Atlantic landmass could very well be the Azores and the Canary Islands in the Atlantic Ocean, where you still have a very intense seismic and volcanic activity. Well, when, you know, you've got some charts in the book, and it, it almost looks like, mm-hmm. and, you know, you could have island hopped across the Atlantic mm-hmm. to get to North America. I mean, it wouldn't have been a big deal at all. Absolutely, if, if absolutely, and this is actually part of, part of the evidence that was brought forth by these uh, uh, scientists, uh, again, like mostly um, mostly in what was like the former Soviet Union, but some of them also in uh, um, in Europe and uh, North America. We suggested, uh, based on geological evidence, uh, but also based on like botanical climatological evidence. Uh, that the large landmass did actually exist in the in the Atlantic Ocean, and specifically in the North Atlantic Ocean, which would explain a number of anomalies, including a, a thing about the great similarity that existed before the last ice age in the both like the uh, like the animals that inhabited North America and Europe, uh, the type of plants and trees that grew into this. Uh, different continents, that almost requires to assume that the land bridge uh, had existed uh, uh, between North America and Europe. Now, uh, this land bridge, as you say, does not have had to be necessarily a continuous uh, land bridge. It could have been like a set of islands or sufficiently close to each other as to allow, like it could have been island hopping at least uh, conduct, but definitely uh, the Atlantic uh, at the time was not uh, the um, impenetrable barrier that it became after the end of the last ice age for transoceanic contacts. Yeah, I mean, and when you're talking millions of years, it, even though we have submersibles that could go down to the bottom, to expect after millions of years for, for there to be any evidence, archaeologically speaking, or even if there is, it's buried under feet, possibly miles of, of sand and Absolutely. soil and all sorts of stuff. So that so that trying to find um, remnants of of that civilization um, is is you know it's it's fruitless to try. But it does Absolutely. feel as though it, it did exist. Because of course it's in the myths, and uh, mm-hmm. but most of our myths come from the last part of Atlantis, the one right before the um, Younger Dryas days. Mm-hmm. Right. So, right. so the the other two um, were, were so far back that it, it's sort of like mm-hmm. saying. But they they explain um, actually a lot of the the legends we have about 
you know, wise people coming from across the sea and, and whatever mm-hmm. to, to help other races, or species, whatever, to evolve and, and become, you know, uh, greater within their own societies. So, so was it mostly just the, the ones that, that from the final collapse, are they mostly the ones we talk about when we talk about these wise people coming? Mm-hmm. Or, or is it from the first two collapses as well? Well, that's the the last collapse is uh, the one that we know best because of, and even then, like as if, uh, of course, like the information is very limited um, because it's the closest one uh, in time to us. Um, however, uh, there were clearly, and I think, like obviously, like earlier waves of, of colonization from from Atlantis. Now, one interesting aspect is that. In the Americas, we have all these traditions about uh, um, these uh, uh, like sages or like uh, cultural heroes. If you think of Quetzalcoatl, if you think of Viracocha, all these great like founders of civilization that invariably came from the east, uh, from from the direction of the Atlantic Ocean. And if you go on the opposite side of the Atlantic in Egypt, you have this idea that gods came from the west. So, if you cross this information, it's almost obvious that these are these gods that have, a, by the way, very similar attributes. So they must have come from the same location. They must have been located somewhere in the central or northern Atlantic Ocean, and from there they spread to like two sides of the Atlantic, both to Europe and Africa, as well as to. The, um, the Americas, and this is what I believe happened after the last sinking of Atlantis at the time of um, the Younger Dryas. Now, um, just to put that in context, when we talk about the Younger Dryas, we're talking about uh, 13,000 years ago, so around 11,000 uh, uh, BC, that's the most commonly accepted date. For, for this great cataclysm, and uh, um, what uh, what that cataclysm really caused was the sinking of some of the last portions of Atlantis above water. By that time, uh, clearly the size of the Atlantean landmass had been already greatly diminished uh, after numerous other cataclysms. Um, and so uh, probably Atlantis still existed uh, uh, then as a, as a sizable island, but definitely not... Uh, um, a continent or a true continent in a, in that sense. So when when it sunk, I clearly sent waves of survivors to both sides of the Atlantic, and these survivors were the ones that restarted civilization in the aftermath of the global cataclysm. And that's what you find in uh, mythologies from across the world, from across all different cultures. I think uh, one of the things that fascinates me, of course, we're in the United States, so it, it feels like, you know, most of it, it the, the real fables and things like that all deal, all are, or, you know, Egypt and India and and South America some, but, but North America almost feels as though it, it I mean, some of the, some of the Native Americans out west have have some of the you know they talk about a flood and things like that but it does it doesn't feel and and if if i missed it in it, it may be in the book but it didn't feel like north america itself 
didn't get the benefit of these wise people coming in and settling here. <laughs> well, I think there are a number of reasons uh, um, to that, and that much of our perception of that um, is also clearly influenced by the by the effect of the of the cataclysm of the younger grass cataclysm. Now, uh, if you if you follow the research of uh, Farris and Kenneth West, uh, were sort of like the pioneers of these younger grass impact hypothesis, what it clearly suggests is that the main location of the impact was in North America. So they identify actually a number of potential impact um, craters, so one of which could be Hudson's Bay, or like located at least in the region of the Great Lakes. So North America would have been completely wiped out. Uh, um, any trace of civilization would have been wiped out down to the bedrock. Uh, if, if you believe in this idea of the of the younger grass impact hypothesis, uh, it's even harder to imagine for us uh, the, the scale of the destruction, the scale of the cataclysm. Uh, um, I think it's not mistaken uh, what Firestone and West suggest is that the, the power of the impact was something equivalent to 1,000 times uh, all of the nuclear arsenal of the Earth combined. Uh, so it would have literally wiped out every trace of civilization from uh, from the immediate areas of the impact and break for thousands of miles uh, away. And that's the reason why we don't find any of that. It was entirely obliterated, entirely wiped out. Um, you think that uh, the, the impacts themselves probably like um, literally like uh, curved past down to the down to the very very bedrock. And one other factor to consider is that even even before that, much of North America was clearly the grip of the Ice Age. So there were these huge uh, polar ice sheets uh, that were going down to the latitude of, uh, of New York uh, and Chicago, basically. So uh, large parts of North America were clearly uninhabitable uh, at the time because they were under the grip of the Ice Age. And then everything else uh, was was wiped out at the time of the younger dry scattering. That's in my mind, in my opinion, the reason why you don't find that much evidence in uh, in North America. At least not uh, not physical, not tangible evidence. You don't have buildings, you don't have structures, uh, but you do have, as uh, I say, like many many myths, many traditions within that uh, within like. Native, uh, Native American uh, uh, cultures that speak of this cataclysm at the time before the cataclysm, when like a great, much more advanced civilization existed, it was destroyed and wiped out in this uh, global catastrophe. Well, when they when they talked about um, the sky wobbling and um, mm-hmm. you know a, a great comet um, hitting the Earth in in and and for for at least two of them i think it was it was in the in in the water so that you had to deal with you know tidal waves that were thousands of feet high and when you talk about mm-hmm. a tidal wave that big um then you understand why it was just people in the, in the mountains that sort of survived um mm-hmm. but it's almost as though um it it it's Seems like they that they had warding of some sort. So so did these mm-hmm. these spiritual people? Did they give them warning of some sort to prepare to? Well, Nora, Noah built his ark, but um, mm-hmm. aside, aside from that, or was it just just all of a sudden? Oh my God! There's a huge wave and you're and you're dead. I mean, 
um, the tsunamis well, that that's, hit. That's a very, yeah. I think that's that's a very interesting aspect because of something you find uh, again very consistently across world mythology is this idea that uh, um, it's not the whole like humanity at the time, but at least like select individuals they receive the warning so that they could prepare this idea also that uh, like repositories of knowledge shelters were created to look for the survival of mankind of knowledge through through the cataclysm and so we must assume there was some sort of uh, preparation now um, how how do you explain that of course as you say like one one possibility is that they received some sort of warning let's say from uh, like these like let's call them entities or, or spiritual beings in a way of these like masters or sages. Uh, but then another possibility is that it, this was truly a recurring cataclysm that had its uh, origin in some great cosmic cycle that we do not yet fully understand. It might be possible to predict uh, the recurrence of, uh, of that cataclysm. This is also something I, I talk about uh, with this uh, with this idea that. Uh, uh, we we might uh, um, have got wrong uh, the real cause of uh, precession. There is actually a wonderful study by author by Walter Crattenden. It's called Lost Star of Myth and Time, uh, which which is suggests a very different astronomical model of uh, precession. So that uh, precession is not just caused by wool in the Earth's axis over tens and thousands of years, but might be a consequence of the fact that we truly, um, that the solar system truly is a binary star system uh, made up of the sun and uh, some other star, quite possibly Sirius. And so it's the interplay of the gravitational forces of uh, these uh, uh, binary star system that causes recurring catastrophes as we either like get closer or farther away from the sun's companion star. Um, these up has uh, consequences or would have consequences on uh, like the like gravitational and like tidal forces uh, that affect the earth, but also on the path of certain cosmic bodies uh, like long period comets, for instance, so that uh, to some extent, uh, these uh, like cataclysms might be predictable, and that might explain actually the concern that the ancients had for the precession of the equinoxes. So we have to ask ourselves this question: Why was precession so terrifying to the ancients? Uh, I think there is much more to that again than just uh, um, a wobble uh, like uh, in the in the Earth's axis. Uh, um, this is probably like a deeper uh, meaning of that. It might be related, again, to some cosmic cycles that we do not understand, but have a, an impact on all life on Earth over thousands of years. Well, it, it seems that every age ends in a cataclysm. And mm-hmm. wh- whether it's volcanic, whether it's um, water, um, but when ages end and 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 I'm not saying they end like, you know, Tuesday at twelve o'clock. It it takes <laughs> thousands of years for an age to transition into the next age. Um sort of like, you know, the age of Pisces to the age to the Aquarian age. Mm-hmm. But 
but it it's almost as though at the end of every age there is a cataclysm at some of some sort that shakes up humanity mm-hmm. that depopulates most of the earth and 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 hopefully then as they rebuild it's 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 a never ending cycle it appears um mm-hmm. you know with with the root races the same thing and and there are millions of years in 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 a root race mm-hmm. so right. so it it's sort of mm-hmm. like you go through the gold and then the silver and then so that so that it's it's almost like it's unavoidable. I mean, why can't you go back and have another golden age? I mean, why right. why is why are we predestined to do this um degeneration of our consciousness? Mm-hmm. It, it, yep. it's 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 consciousness. It's lo- it's becoming more and more materialistic to the point that we lose our spirituality, and then there's a cataclysm, and we find it. It's kind of like people who only go to church at, at Easter and and Christmas. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, yes, it's and, like and you know. Definitely, this is a this is an idea you find across so many world mythologies. You are mentioning this idea of like the uh, the golden age, uh, the silver age. Uh, Bronze Age, Iron Age, you find them, you find this idea among the Greeks, you find it in the in the Hindu Yuga cycles uh, as well, but you also find it uh, among a number of um, pre-Hispanic uh, uh, people and among the Mesoamerican peoples, you have this idea of the five suns representing different cosmological ages, which all ended in uh, in characters. Now, a very interesting idea about this model of the Yuga cycles is that, uh, um, of course, like you go from the Golden Age and then through a process of degradation, uh, you enter into a Silver Age, then the Bronze Age, uh, and finally the Iron Age, but then the cycle starts over again. So that's where you find a very close parallel between this idea of cosmic cycles and the phenomenon that we know as uh, the procession of uh, the equinoxes. Because even even the period of that cycle coincides in some versions with set around like 24,000 years in the case of the Yuga cycle. So numbers that again like are very very close to what is now the, the assumed uh, uh, period of the of the procession of the equinox. And again, if you think that there is more to to procession. Uh, than what uh, like our current astronomical explanation of the phenomenon are. If there is actually a deeper cosmological explanation to that, uh, then uh, uh, as, uh, as we like transition from one processional age to another, that might actually trigger uh, much deeper changes, um, not only in uh, like the uh, the Earth and uh, you know like the gravitational tidal forces uh, to which the Earth is subjected, but even in human consciousness. So there might actually be the description of uh, some like change in the physical medium itself that we do not quite yet understand over thousands of years. Also, just because like our modern science is uh, less than 300 years old, so uh, when it comes to understanding these cosmic cycles that take uh, thousands or tens of thousands of years, we're just in, in, in our infancy, literally. Well, it just it seems unfair that it, it, I, I think what I rile against is is being is somebody telling me and and yeah and certainly I do understand 
what you're saying as far as the series and the progression and the whole thing. I got it. But it makes me angry that, that okay, so I can figure out which root race I'm in, what stage I'm in, and it's like, well, I don't want to be here. I want to be in a golden age because that's a lot more fun. And and it, it's it's sort of like you you don't have a choice, and yet you're put in this position to learn what you have to learn. I understand it's a spiritual crisis too, but but it just seems to me that if we are repeating something over and over again and hopefully spiraling higher each time we do it, where are we going? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I think uh, and that's that's a question. Quite clearly, like do not uh, do not yeah. have a uh, have an answer. But if, 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 I think you 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 describe it well. Like uh, thinking about it, it's really a spiral, right? It's never like uh, an identical uh, repetition. And there is a, uh, an underlying concept of of evolution. Otherwise, it would be like come back to always like repeat. It. The same, uh, the same cycle, the same pattern over and over again. So there is a this uh, this idea almost in these like cycles of civilization, the sequence of the road races. That even though like the path of each road race is roughly similar, they all go through like golden age and then through a process of, of degradation. But then uh, uh, the the following race always like is able to keep some elements of the previous one and improve. On them, so you still you still have a, a, a concept of evolution within that frame. Mm-hmm. Well, so so it took thousands, hundreds of thousands of years for Atlantis, Atlantis to finally be all gone. Mm-hmm. But obviously, there were survivors. Where did they all go? I mean, are they mm-hmm. are they are they the 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 parents? Or the initiators of of a lot of the um, new spiritual insights, intuitions that, that that have been triggered from time to time throughout throughout time. I mean, is it is it the Atlanteans that were there that, that sort of lit the match that that lit the lantern that allowed humanity to look forward and discover more and more and more? So when we talk about uh, the uh, last uh, cataclysm, at least uh, the, the the younger grass cataclysm, by then we're clearly already talking about uh, physical beings, right? So when I talk about uh, these Atlantean survivors that reached different parts of the world, I'm, I'm talking about like physical flesh and bones human beings. Um, uh-huh. Now, what you find, however, and which you find extremely interesting in a number of traditions, and going back to this idea of the biblical Nephilim, um, you have this, uh, this idea that these people did not only bring knowledge, uh, like a superior culture, but they also uh, mixed with the local population um, as well. They created, in a way, um, I think what we might describe as like a hybrid, uh, um, Let's call it Atlantean human race uh, in, a, in a way. So we have to think that uh, back then uh, the um, majority of the uh, the world population. Well, maybe like uh, let me take like one one further step back because I think this is a very uh, very important point. Yeah, nobody knows uh, exactly uh, how modern humans uh, came to be. Um, I Meaning, like the origins of. Homo sapiens sapiens uh, is still um, 
like uh, largely largely a mystery, still like largely unexplained. The huge gap that separates modern humans from their 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 ancestors, even even Neanderthal men, and there is always this uh, this question about uh, the missing link, and particularly nowadays that uh, new human species are are being discovered. And so. Uh, when we think about uh, the, uh, the Atlanteans, to me, it was not only just a cultural civilization, uh, um, it was actually, to a very large extent, uh, a different human species uh, that evolved uh, on uh, this continent uh, or this landmass of uh, Atlantis. Now, when these uh, Atlanteans started mixing uh, with the hominins that inhabited the rest of the world at the time, which were uh, mostly Homo erectus and uh, Neanderthal, uh, that is uh, what to me gave rise to that huge jump, to that huge leap in intelligence uh, and like physical development that gave rise to modern humans. So that's uh, to me what uh, uh, explains the origin of modern humans. Now, uh, science of course ignores uh, these, uh, this possibility because it even uh, uh, denies the possibility of the existence of an uh, Atlantic landmass in which a different human species could have evolved. But if you look at the genetic footprint that uh, um, pretty much every one of us carries, then you have clearly, uh, and this is something that's been confirmed by genetics, uh, the uh, imprint uh, of uh, some unknown uh, human species, not quite it's not been identified yet, but I do believe that this is really what triggered the evolution from, uh, um, from like primitive humans to modern humans. Now, if we uh, flash forward to the time of the Younger Dryas uh, uh, Cataclysm, by then a large majority of um, the human population was made up already of modern humans, but you might still have had uh, individuals carrying more of uh, the Atlantean genome. So you would have had a second wave of hybridization. This is exactly what all these myths about the Nephilim talk about. Uh, uh, the Nephilim were essentially the progeny of uh, pure Atlanteans and modern humans. Uh, that might explain, by the way, why in many parts of the world where you find these very anomalous uh, um, elongated skulls, uh, like individuals with a very different physical traits, very different physical characteristics. So one explanation is that these were uh, hybrids, uh, in a way, like Atlantean-human hybrids. And so when we uh, think about the impact uh, that uh, Atlantean survivors had uh, after after the Catechism, after Younger Rice Catechism, we need to well, I think both of uh, cultural impact, yes, but also of uh, these uh, this component uh, of uh, um, additional uh, uh, genetic admixture from uh, from these Atlantean uh, Atlantean populations as well. And this is something uh, uh, this very fascinating. Um, if you uh, look at the stories in the Bible, for instance, uh, of uh, the Nephilim, of the birth of Noah, for instance, you have. Specific set of characteristics uh, that are attributed uh, to um, these, uh, like uh, let's call them Atlantean hybrids. Uh, in a way, they were like quite unique and would have set them apart from uh, the rest of the of the population. And you find uh, uh, these these same set of characteristics quite consistently um, around the world. Well, I think you know the elongated skulls, especially. I know that. Um 
they they have discovered them in in many different places. But if you look at the hieroglyphs, um, Akhenaten, uh, King Tut had an elongated skull, as did his wife, as did his children, um, and then and then. You know, those, the elongated skulls have been found in burrows and uh, around Stonehenge. There, there were mm-hmm. many burials of, of people with elongated skulls there. So that, so that that characteristic has has you know certainly followed followed down through through time. So that it's it's still there. Mm-hmm. It's still mm-hmm. a part of 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 who we are. I know that. Um, there, there are are certainly the the they're look even bl- looking at blood types the Rh negative factor mm-hmm. um, absolutely the ba- the Basque have mm-hmm. you know so so that there are places in the country where there are things that, that scientists can't explain and yet there they mm-hmm. are and um, right. it's, it's it's amazing to me um, must be annoying. <laughs> For the scientist to, to to be to have to say, I really don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I do think that to a very large extent, when we talk about Atlantean culture, Atlantean civilization, uh, there was not only an Atlantean culture, but there was also like a, uh, let's say an Atlantean uh, humanity in a way. Um, I, I do think uh, that uh, uh, they represent, in a way, a separate uh, uh, human species. And so uh, through like hybridization and uh, increasing a mixture of that element uh, with other hominins and other human species, then what you got is, uh, is modern humans. And so uh, that might explain why among certain populations you have a prevalence of... Uh, um, specific genetic traits whose origin is basically unknown, as you say, like the Rh negative blood type, haplogroup X. It's very interesting. It is found like in certain parts of the world uh, where you have similar traditions of the arrival of uh, these uh, uh, very advanced people, of these very advanced uh, beings. And then with the question of the elongated skulls, um, again, I think there are two aspects to the question. One is uh, the desire, in a way, to imitate the physical appearance of these beings that were perceived as superiors, as being children of the gods, uh, through artificial cranial deformation. But the number of these elongated skulls cannot easily be explained away as just the effect of artificial cranial deformation. We must uh, uh, conclude uh, that this was an actual genetic trait. Um, you have many examples of that in Peru, in South Africa, with Boscov men, uh, which this was clearly a genetic characteristic. It was not the a consequence of uh, um, artificial cranial modification. So, uh, again, the point of the question, where do these people come from? And this is a characteristic that you find throughout the world. You find it in South America. You find it in, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, um, so this practice of... Uh, um, cranial deformation, uh, the presence of elongated skulls. So, so, uh, I, I do think uh, this was, a, in a way, a characteristic of these uh, um, Atlanteans uh, that uh, came and colonized all these different uh, um, places. I think the, the other place where I found a correlation 
it, it, at least it, it, it kind of it perked me up a little bit. Um, Barbara and Christian O'Brien in their book on the, the Shining Ones, mm-hmm. um, they, yep. they talk about their, their characteristics and very much mm-hmm. like, um, you know, Noah when he was born, he had the same mm-hmm. yeah. characteristics of the Shining Ones. As a mm-hmm. matter of fact, his, right. his father accused his mother of playing around um, mm-hmm. with the angels, of course. Um, right. So, so, so it's it's like there were physical characteristics too. I, mm-hmm. And, and in, in some places, I do believe that that the Atlanteans were even said to be shining, to be to radiate light. Mm-hmm. And and so. Right. You know, I, I think that that over thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, whatever whatever trace of their DNA is 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 still with us. Um, it, it's small, and yet it's it's big enough to keep us searching for mm-hmm. the answers, to searching for, you know, where did they come from? Why were they here? What do they mean to us? How are we? How yeah. are we related? And and I, it's it's a valid question because mm-hmm. here was a people that were that were definitely of a at least at the beginning of each of their their um, turns of the mm-hmm. wheel, so to speak. There was yep. a great deal of spirituality. There was a great deal of linking mm-hmm. with cosmic consciousness. There was a great deal of utilizing the power and the skills of their of their minds to move things to create things and to make things and i think mm-hmm. the the one thing that 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 really does say to me that there was a culture that spread across the world and left its thumbprint there it's because mm-hmm. it it's i i would say that that atlantis was was where we got the original idea for pyramids from because the element mm-hmm. of pyramids um are certainly all over the world. Every every mm-hmm. culture has its own. And what's fascinating is I think they found that in in Egypt and in South America there were similar patterns to how the bricks were laid that were similar and yet the cultures never even had a connection. Mm-hmm. And right. and you know right. you 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 have you have Egypt and you have South America and you have um even in North America some of the Native American Indians had had pyramids and there are pyramids um underwater in in the Caribbean and, and there are pyramids in in Japan so and then, you know, of course India. And so that so that pyramids all seem to be about the same time frame, give or take a hundred thousand years. So, what was it they yeah. were leaving that was leaving us a message for the future? Mm-hmm. Well, the the question of pyramids is an interesting one because, on the one hand, you have some like superficial similarities, I would call them, uh, between like uh, different building types. Of course, you have a, a pyramid in Egypt, uh, you have pyramids in, in Mesoamerica and South America. To some extent, you could consider even like the temples of Angkor. 
or like the uh-huh. many many examples of Hindu temples to be like pyramids. Uh, however, when you look at uh, the uh, the time of construction, you realize they were like separated by by thousands of years. So uh, to me, it's not uh, uh, it's not uh, to suggest uh, that. Uh, uh, Pyramids, all these different structures were built by the same people. I think that's that's an impossibility because of the uh, the distances, because of uh, the time frame in which they were constructed. But the idea itself, I mean, the idea is very old, uh, and that can be traced back uh, to to a common ancestor. And that ancestor, even before the the shape of the pyramid of the true pyramid uh, took uh, form uh, it's it's basically the idea of the cosmic mountain uh, this is uh, i think what really is at the core of uh, um, the different pyramid building cultures they were trying to create a representation of the cosmic mountain uh, as it might have existed on uh, Atlantis uh, thousands of years before so the pyramid itself becomes a, a symbol in a way of uh, the uh, the fusion of uh, the terrestrial energies and the celestial energy that's that's the meaning of the of the pyramid of the cosmic mountain is why you find it throughout the world so to me rather than uh, like trying to find evidence to show that uh, uh, either the Egyptians sailed to to America or vice versa to explain how these pyramids shape uh, um, spread throughout the world. Uh, to, to me, a much more interesting question is understanding where did that, this idea, the idea of a pyramid, the idea of the cosmic mountain originate? Well, you know, when, when you talk about the pyramids. I, I know one one pharaoh dreamed there was going to be a flood, and so he created a pyramid mm-hmm. where he could store, um, you know, uh, first of all the bodies of his dead relatives, and the, and then and then a lot of material as far as history and and mm-hmm. farming and and agriculture and everything. And and if that's the case, and that I can see how that would would genuinely be a monument of of you know, leaving this uh, a history, an explanation, a, a story mm-hmm. of, of a culture and and, and a species. Um, but but they, they it's said that that there were there were tablets or or material buried mm-hmm. in Egypt, in the Yucatan and. Mm-hmm. And the Gobi, or or is it Tibet? I, there's there's a third place where they were buried supposedly. Well, depending depending but, on the sources, right? I think you're probably referring to this idea of the holes of records from uh, from Abidar Kaisley, yeah. and uh, Kaisley uh, talked about three holes of records: one in Egypt, uh, one in um, like let's say like Central America, Yucatan, potentially. And another one on Atlantis itself, on the on the island of Poseidon. Of course, uh, there might have been others. Uh, um, Tibet, as you mentioned, is uh, one one location that uh, many uh, their tradition associated with this idea of uh, like repositories of knowledge. Uh, all these legends of Agartha or Shambhala in uh, in Central Asia, they they might have a connection 
with with that. But something something truly fascinating in all these stories, this idea of the survival of knowledge. So it was not only about uh, saving uh, people, as you find, for instance, in the biblical narrative of the of Noah's Ark, or in the um, in the uh, Iranian myth of the Avesta with the construction of this great. Uh, Subterranean city, uh, Devara, where the, the people could have, like uh, survive the the, the flood, uh, the cataclysm. But it's also uh, the idea that civilization, uh, the arts of civilization, all the inventions, all the culture of this great uh, um, antediluvian society had to be preserved uh, somehow in uh, in repositories of knowledge, so that um, when uh, um, Humanity, or at least like the survivors from this cataclysm, could uh, could start again. Uh, they could find and rediscover all of these uh, uh, knowledge, so that instead of starting over again from uh, um, from from the Stone Age or like children, they could uh, uh, at least like capitalize on knowledge of uh, the lost civilization. And this is, uh, by the way, what I think truly happened. I think the plan was largely successful in the sense that uh, uh, what you have immediately after the younger rise, and this is something that uh, modern archaeology has never been able to, to, to explain, you have uh, a cultural explosion. Uh, we have this uh, agricultural revolution where you, hundreds uh, of uh, different uh, um, crops and cultivars uh, get domesticated uh, or allegedly domesticated. I think it was not just domestication, but they were, these were actually reintroduced. Uh, after after the global cataclysm, uh, but you have that uh, pretty much at the same time uh, all over the world in locations that are clearly associated with stories of survival from uh, from the flood uh, and of uh, the appearance of these uh, uh, like advanced uh, um, sages or like cultural heroes that brought the gift of agriculture and civilization. This is something that uh, has not yet received a satisfactory explanation why for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, uh, allegedly uh, nothing happened. Uh, and then all of a sudden, like people were just hunter-gatherers. And then all of a sudden, uh, just after a younger rise cataclysm, uh, so around uh, 11,000, 12,000 years ago, you have this cultural revolution, it's actually called the Neolithic Revolution, in which suddenly you have agriculture, you have much more sophisticated tools, so you have the beginning of megalithic architecture, as you find at uh, Gobekli Tepe and many other places around the world. There's really a cultural explosion. Now, what it, what it suggests in the book uh, is that uh, the plan to resurrect civilization, the aftermath of the cataclysm, was largely successful. Um, actually, in many places, uh, in many parts of the world, you have uh, enormous engineering projects that were undertaken around that time. That's the time when I believe uh, the pyramids uh, in, uh, in Egypt, like on the Giza Plateau, were constructed. Many other great megalithic sites like Baalbek, uh, Jerusalem's Temple Mount, for instance. Uh, many of uh, the, the unexplained megalithic ruins you find in Peru were built. Uh, in the time immediately after the the younger rise cataclysm, the civilization was being rebuilt. Uh, but then something happened. Something happened around 9600 BC, which is the date uh, of uh, the last Atlantean cataclysm, according to Plato, that stopped uh, this process on its tracks. Uh, 
So what I believe is that this was a second cataclysm that occurred uh, at the end of the Younger Dryas period, so that you should really think of the Younger Dryas as a, a period that witnessed two twin cataclysms, one at the beginning of the Younger Dryas, about 13,000 years ago, and then another one towards the end of uh, the Younger Dryas, about uh, 11,000 or 11,600 years ago, so roughly separated by 1400 to 1500 years. During that period of time, what they call the Neo-Atlantean period, what you see is actually a resurrection of Atlantean civilization, um, which uh, to me is, uh, is quite unequivocal. You have uh, uh, the evidence of these enormous megalithic constructions, these enormous projects that were undertaken at that time, but that it suddenly came to a halt uh, around 9600 BC. We do not know why. It was probably another cataclysm that occurred at the time that literally stopped them in their tracks. And after that, civilization never recovered again. So uh, in, a, in a way, the plan was successful to ensure the survival of their younger rise, but it probably had not planned for another cataclysm so close to the previous one. And that's what... Uh, um, fully caused civilization to fall back by the thousands or ten thousands of years back into the Stone Age. Yeah, it, it's, you know, when you when you look at the history, you think, well, good grief. You know, every time they get ahead, a comet hits them, and <laughs> they start again. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it, Chris, you, 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 it, it feels like it's happening, you know, very on a very regular basis, and not only a very regular basis, but frequently. But but when you look at the time frames, it's it's you know hundreds of thousands of years or ten thousand years between these these mm-hmm. comet strikes, and it seems mm-hmm. to me that that the comet strike is is what depopulates the Earth and takes everybody back mm-hmm. to square one, just about. Yeah. And and it, it's just I, I kind of I, I wonder because they talk about you know the the chambers under the Great Pyramid that there are seven of them and, and mm-hmm. at the ninth one that's where all the secrets and the mysteries are and I find that to be symbolic rather than literal at least to mm-hmm. my own mind and and I think that that you know when you when you look at all of this material it, it's it's sort of like wanting to wake humanity up to the fact that our, we don't have all the time in the world because sooner or later right. another comet is going to come flying by. Mm-hmm. Now, we may, we, we may have 16,000 years or so before it happens again, but it's going to happen again. And, mm-hmm. and when that happens... Yep. We're going to be back to square one again, and and we will have again, mm-hmm. hopefully, hundreds of thousands of years to grow out of out of, you know, um, being primitive into being you know a, you know highly evolved. But what what's fascinating to me is there are these stories of these hidden chambers with with all of the material mm-hmm. we need to 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 climb back faster. And yet, over the hundreds of thousands of years, nobody's ever found them. And yet, we know the area they're in. Well, I mean, what are they? What are they waiting for? 
Well, I, I, I do think actually, uh, and again, that might sound, might be a bit controversial, but these, uh, these chambers were found. Uh, they were found thousands of years ago already. They were opened, and that's exactly what uh, triggered these, uh, like, in a way, like Renaissance, almost like what they call like these Neo-Atlantean periods, Neo-Atlantean Renaissance. Mm-hmm. But then something happened again and like stopped these, uh, this process on, uh, on its tracks before there could really be um, like complete rebuilding or reconstruction of civilization. It might have been a number of factors to that. So um, also, also Graham Hancock, for instance, he suggests the fact that uh, a second cometary impact ended uh, the younger Dryas. Uh, and uh, what, uh, what that caused uh, was uh, um, global warming at that point, uh, rather than global cooling uh, as at the beginning of the younger Dryas. So, uh, even though the, the impact itself at the end of the Younger Rise might not have been uh, as devastating uh, as uh, the first one that started uh, the, this mini ice age known as the, as the Younger Dryas, but what it caused was a dramatic rise in sea levels. So, so we know that uh, within uh, about 2,000 years uh, after the end uh, of uh, the last ice age, sea levels rose as much as 120 meters, which is uh, roughly like 380 feet. I said, uh, just imagine like what that would happen, what that would mean uh, for, for our civilization today. You would have like that. some of the uh, wealthiest and largest cities in the world that would be under the waves, uh, New York City, London, um, Singapore, Shanghai, all these like great centers of civilization would be lost forever. So if you imagine that the same happened, you have to think about this civilization that just survived a global cataclysm, was just slowly starting to rebuild and reconstruct what had existed before, and then all of a sudden they have to abandon all of that in the face of rising sea levels. Um, so even even with all the resources of modern civilization, I do not think our civilization would survive something like that. Uh, um, this idea of having like to continually like abandon what you started and like move over to another place, start over again, and every time you start over, you're clearly like lacking at that point. The tools uh, you're lacking, uh, much is lost uh, every time you, you restart, and that's how you get to a Stone Age once again. Oh, yeah, and, and look at Pumapunka. I mean, mm-hmm. that was that was deserted rapidly, obviously, yeah. and and you have no idea what all those stones are for, and they, they, are, they are created with such precision that... Mm-hmm. That, it, that they can't even replicate them to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, there must have been a number of uh, of other factors as well, because uh, and this is an aspect that I'm very interesting. Uh, I'm very interested in also from uh, more of like cultural history and like sociological point of view. What, what happens in that case of like a complete collapse of civilization? The reality is that. Uh, Probably in the in the first century, let's say like the first decades or the first centuries after the cataclysm, the survivors were rebuilding uh, civilization. They would still have many of uh, the tools, many of the knowledge of uh, the previous civilization. Maybe even some of the uh, like machines, like the more advanced equipment. 
but then what was lost uh, and like could not be easily reconstructed was that entire uh, like technological industrial complex. Um, it's almost as if uh, like tomorrow our entire civilization was like wiped out. And uh, yes, for a while, the survivors will still be able to use uh, like automobiles and, uh, and machines. But when the basic parts uh, break down, there's no way of replacing them again. And so that's, that's how you get to a Stone Age. It might take a while. It's not, uh, not immediate. But there is simply no way of replacing that. And so that's, uh, that's almost like this, uh, this idea of a cultural uh, devolution uh, in a way of cultural regression, which is what you find at many, many sites, many megalithic sites. So uh, the most sophisticated uh, uh, structure are also the oldest. Uh, and then you have a process of cultural degradation. Uh, they were perhaps no longer able to recreate uh, the same type of Tools. Just imagine, like all the technology that needs to go into creating something as simple as, uh, um, like a metal chisel or a metal saw, for instance. You need to have mines to extract the ore. You need to have smelting facilities. So uh, these are all things that once they are gone, uh, they're very hard to to bring back. Uh, uh, it's not only a question of having the the know-how. Maybe yes, maybe uh, you do have the, the the know-how, but you don't have the resources to to uh-huh. do that, and so I think that there was a there was the real the real challenge that uh, these people faced uh, in so many different uh, so many different places around the world, and that, this is a pattern uh, that you find at a number of megalithic sites of abandonment. So you have this gigantic megalithic construction at some point were just abandoned. Uh, you find it about that, for instance, where you have in Lebanon, where you have these enormous monoliths uh, uh, weighing uh, over a thousand tons. Uh, they were just abandoned in, in the quarries. Uh, so you ask yourself, why? Why what was that the case? Even even in the case of the Giza pyramids, uh, um, my my hypothesis is that the, the, the Giza complex was never completed. Um, the pyramids uh, were pretty abandoned at some early stage of completion, were only completed thousands of years later by the dynastic uh, Egyptians. Uh, you have the case of Tiwanaku in, in Bolivia that was abandoned at some point. So it's a pattern almost all over the world of these great megalithic sites. They were at some point abandoned. And so uh, the question is, why were they abandoned? Was it because uh, they no longer have the technology because some cataclysm again hit uh, that uh, civilization or was there something else like um, social, social unrest? Uh, um, but we we don't know really what happened, but clearly that reconstruction effort was stopped on its tracks uh, and uh, um, could never be restarted again. So this this whole process of uh, rebuilding Atlantean civilization, what they call the Neo-Atlantean project, was stopped on its tracks. Um, it might restart again now because if, if we if we think about like the uh, the timing of human history, even of Atlantean civilization. We're talking about like 10,000 years or a timeline of 400,000 or even more. So it might just be like a small, um, a small gap, uh, really, um, before, before that civilization can be rebuilt and can be reconstructed. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I know that, uh, you know, when, when you think about the techniques that were out there that were obviously used that, that we can't replicate, and yet 
you you, you think, and, and I'm going to go to a, another favorite topic, which which of course is is the um, the, the Templars and and the the um, under the the Temple of Solomon, how it it's said that they found something, and mm-hmm. I I was not aware of something that you have in the book that I found very fascinating, and and that was that a lot of the large cathedrals that obviously mm-hmm. the Templars used with their flying buttresses and everything have the same layout as the Temple of Solomon. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. I mean, exactly, down yep. to pillars and things like that. And mm-hmm. yep. that was how many thousands of years apart? Mm-hmm. Right. right. And so that, that's why uh, when you asked me the question, like, uh, to, like why these like, archives or hosts of records not yet been discovered? Well, I think they have been discovered. They've been rediscovered multiple times throughout uh, human history. So one case is just... The one you uh, you reference uh, uh, you refer to right now. I think there are a number of other instances uh, throughout throughout history where you have these unexplained knowledge uh, that appears in unexpected places. Um, one another example I talk about in the book is the cartographic tradition of antiquity, in which you have these incredibly sophisticated maps, these portfolio charts. That uh, appear all of a sudden in Europe during the 13th and the 14th century, uh, containing uh, um, techniques of mathematical projection that were entirely unknown to the scores of the Middle Ages and certainly also to the scores of antiquity, showing the profiles of the coastlines of Europe, um, of North Africa, uh, perhaps even even of North America, North and South America, with a degree of precision unparalleled uh, uh, until until the until the modern age, uh, and they appear all of a sudden. So uh, you have to wonder where did this knowledge uh, uh, come from. Yeah. Um, and again, you can you can trace it back uh, to to some extent uh, to a number of episodes. So uh, you may believe that some of that knowledge uh, somehow made its way into the Library of Alexandria uh, from there to Constantinople and then into into Europe. Uh, I think that's one possible chain of uh, of transmission. Uh, but definitely, you mm-hmm. have uh, the this idea of a, of a knowledge that uh, uh, is hidden, maybe, but it's not uh, always lost, and sometimes it just resurfaces. Um, recently, also like Manu Manu Seisade, um published a very interesting book just about this subject of the of the whole of records, uh, what might be under the things in uh, in Egypt. And again, one of the uh, he also believes, uh, by the way. That this whole of records was breached already in antiquity, thousands of years ago, probably during the dynastic period of Egyptian civilization. And uh, the, the, the evidence uh, that it brings uh, of it uh, is uh, the appearance of uh, a very advanced knowledge that is entirely incompatible with the knowledge of the time. So when you find evidence, for instance, of knowledge of the structure of the solar system, of the orbit of the planets, uh, um, 4,000, 5,000 years ago that appears all of a sudden in very unexpected places, then you must wonder where did this knowledge come from. I think it's a very similar case also in the, um, with like the origin of Gothic architecture. 
uh, as one of the great realizations of the of the Middle Ages. Uh, where did this knowledge come from? It represents total discontinuity compared to Romanesque and like early earlier medieval architectural styles. So, um, and, uh, and clearly, that that must have involved uh, um, some sort of cultural transmission from a source that we do not know. Um, and that, that was certainly not an Arabic source uh, at the time. Um, so it might very well be a very ancient source that was simply rediscovered at the time. Well, that, I, I see you're talking the Perry Reese map, and I think mm-hmm. that map was found to be um, it had it it had Antarctica uh, as as it, without ice. And it, and it, it had the mm-hmm. the uh, the shape absolutely dead on, and and that it was really quite accurate, even down to the latitudes, mm-hmm. I think. And yep. um, they said they said it was it was really it was a map that was copied from other maps that was copied from other maps. Mm-hmm. So that right. Um, so so yeah, that, that definitely had to be something that that came from. Gosh, another generation of humanity, and and yet yeah, and that's mm-hmm. it, it. It's fascinating. It, it, it's but you know, it was it. It would make me very sad to think that there was no more there. I mean, there has to be more stuff out there. Um, mm-hmm. For sure. I know the the the, sure. the copper sure. scroll that 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 you know they're they're mm-hmm. they're coming close to deciphering has some some material on it that that. Could easily relate to some of the the secrets that we're looking for. I mean, if if there's no more secrets, it's no more fun. I mean, if there's nothing left to be discovered, then what's the point of 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 looking? And and mm-hmm. you know, so often when we look, we find we find what we don't expect to find, and yet sometimes that's even better than what we were looking for. Yeah, yeah. but um, I think uh, this uh, this brings up. Uh, Brings it up, I think, up uh, a very controversial um, topic. Uh, I also talk about uh, in in the book, which is this uh, this idea. And, and by the way, I, I am not very fond of uh, conspiracy theories or anything like that. But you must wonder, right, when you have uh, um, all this idea of like uh, lost uh, knowledge. Uh, what happened to to that knowledge? Uh, it's almost as if uh, pretty much every avenue of knowledge might lead us to the rediscovery of the Atlantean knowledge uh, was somehow closed. Uh, you have a number of episodes, um, the destruction of the Library of Alexandria, uh, like many, many episodes throughout, uh, throughout history of deliberate and systematic destruction of knowledge. So uh, this uh, question of uh, whether there are not forces out there that uh, in a way want to prevent uh, this knowledge from being accessed uh, again. And uh, um, when you when you ask yourself the question, what would be the reason uh, for that? I think the reason is actually very simple. I think that there are forces that want to prevent uh, the rebirth of Atlantean civilization. Uh, if you think of the last ten thousand years, almost uh, what you can uh, uh, see is, uh, is a struggle. Really, it's almost like 
uh, a cold war in a way it's gone on for thousands and thousands of years they also uh, describe in the book uh, between uh, what you could call the forces of the Atlantean tradition uh, and the anti-Atlantean uh, tradition in a way um, with like very very opposite agenda and almost in all those instances in which you have uh, an attempt at rebuilding uh, that lost knowledge uh, something happens uh, that uh, um, like effectively shut down uh, all these uh, all these attempts. Well, when you get down to it, knowledge is power, and if you have knowledge, you have power to make choices and decisions for yourself. <laughs> and there are always groups of of entities, people, um, who want who want to control humanity as opposed to allowing it to flourish so that yeah i think that goes on it goes on every every different level of of evolution we go through there are always those who want to hold down insight and 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 the magic mm-hmm. that that we have within us and um it it's it is a struggle between dark and light absolutely mm-hmm. And that's something that's gone on since the beginning of time. I don't see that yep. changing, but but yep. it, it is it is something that I think everyone should be aware of, and that that everyone is a part of. Because while we are being swept into you know in, into humanity as a whole, going through le- learning a lesson, each of us on, on an individual level are learning lessons as well, and. And the more knowledge we have, and, and I'm not talking necessarily about mm-hmm. political or, or or that kind of knowledge. I'm talking about knowledge of of spirit and knowledge of understanding mm-hmm. and knowledge of purpose yeah. of evolution. Once you have the knowledge of those things, then then you can't be controlled, you know, because you mm-hmm. have free will yeah. and you have choice. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I. I, I it's definitely still going on, and people can feel it to this day. Yeah, yeah, and, and there are actually a number of myths that can certainly be interpreted in this way. One, one of my favorite myths is actually that of the Tower of Babel, because there you have this idea of a post-flood reconstruction. But what you have is after the, the Great Flood, humanity is united again, and they embark on this great endeavor of building this this tower. Uh, it's almost a symbol in a way, and that's the way interpreted in the book of the rebuilding of the resurrection of Atlantean civilization, Neo-Atlantean civilization at least, in the in the post-Diluvian period. Uh, but then this uh, this attempt uh, is uh, um, immediately uh, interrupted, uh, and uh, the tower is destroyed by God, uh, according to, to to the book of Genesis. Um, uh-huh. So again, you have this idea of, of, of an interrupted uh, uh, project. Uh, there, are on the one hand, like uh, forces uh, that uh, perhaps like more aligned with the, with the Atlantean tradition, like this idea of like the reconstruction of uh, what was lost uh, with uh, with the flood. But then, on the other hand, you have uh, these forces of the anti-tradition antagonize them, and uh, uh, eventually, like 
destroy these uh, um, Tower of Babel and result in like the scattering of, of humanity. So I think this brought a number of like very, very difficult uh, questions about like uh, um, right or wrong and about like uh, where like true justice uh, uh, lies. And this is an account that can be interpreted in multiple ways. Of course, like the, the traditional ways that God punished the arrogance of, of Nimrod of the builders of the tower. But you also see it uh, uh, in a different way as, uh, um, for instance, like there was, by the way, the, the Gnostic interpretation of these uh, of this account uh, as uh, these, uh, like God not being like, like a loving God, uh, but simply like wanting to prevent uh, humanity from rising up to, um, to, to, to the stars or its full potential. Well, you talk about Atlantis being the cradle of civilization. Mm-hmm. And, and you talk about Shambhala, and Shambhala, from what mm-hmm. I could gather, was located theoretically in the Gobi Desert, and the Gobi Desert seems mm-hmm. to be a focus where people are looking again today. Is is that because mm-hmm. there there is material there to be found, or is that where yeah. another center of spirituality mm-hmm. is going to be? What what is yeah, so what in is the, in the in the esoteric tradition? You have this idea that uh, after the, the Atlantean cataclysm. We had a fragmentation of uh, the original, uh, um, let's say, like Sita uh, or the original, like, uh, um, center of uh, uh, civilization. So, from having uh, just one center of uh, civilization, one center of spirituality, then these. Uh, broke down uh, into two. You had one Atlantean center uh, that was later destroyed, and then you had another center in uh, the Gobi Desert, in the region of uh, uh, Central Asia. And so, uh, again, even even in these, uh, like, let me call it a myth, uh, uh, you have this idea of a duality, right? So on the one hand, the forces of the Atlantean tradition, and then you have these uh, anti-Atlantean forces uh, in uh, in a way. And of course, like according to some interpretations or some views, uh, the uh, like Atlanteans were the evil sorcerers that were punished with uh, with the flood, whereas uh, this Gobi Center was a center according to theosophy of Aryan humanity, of the present true race of these enlightened beings. But you can also see it the other way around, actually, and see something darker, maybe, in the plan of these, uh, like, Gobi uh, centers that oppose uh, the, the Atlantean tradition. There's sort of deception, in, uh, in a way. Yeah, I'm just, I'm fascinated. If that was the case, then... Why have there no been no archaeological diggings in the Gobi Desert, aside from the fact that it's very hot? Well, uh, there has been there has been archaeological research, so, um, maybe not going back uh, to ten thousand years ago, but definitely what we know today is that the, that whole region of the Gobi Desert was once very different, uh, um, was a, a much more fertile uh, region and there were many cities uh, in uh, in there we're still talking about a period of um, uh, 2000 3000 
um, years ago. And so the, the archaeological remains of that time, they have been found. There have been a number of very interesting discoveries uh, in uh, the region of the Gobi Desert, particularly in the Tarima Basin, with these uh, um, like mummies uh, that uh, were found, like the church and men, for instance, uh, that are interesting for a number of reasons. First, uh, because uh, these uh, uh, were not Asian uh, uh, individuals. Uh, um, they looked much more like uh, Europeans or like Caucasians, and it was certainly like a large population of these individuals settled in, uh, in the Gobi Desert uh, at the time. And also their culture was very different from uh, that of the surrounding uh, population. Uh, there is debate as to what was the origin of uh, these uh, these people, whether they really represented an indigenous group or, or they were instead like immigrants from some other area along uh, the Silk Road. But definitely the, the Gobi Desert was for thousands of years a very important uh, cradle of uh, civilization. Um, and the reality is that uh, we know very little of uh, what uh, may still lie buried uh, under under the sands of the of the Gobi Desert. Well, that's that's some place that you know I'm going to focus on because it's you know everybody's digging in Jerusalem and and in, in other places where they're, they're looking for. Places that we've heard of, places that we know of, and yet, and yet, there are so many fascinating other areas that that don't seem to have been utilized and and, mm-hmm. and investigated as much and as richly as they could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah. I know that uh, that, and I mentioned it before, the the stone chambers in um, in the northeast. Um, they had corbel construction. They had lintels that were very, very heavy, and, and in some in some cases, they had stones that were as big as some of the stones in the Great Pyramid in Egypt. And they, you know, when when people think of antiquity, they think of um, Greece and Rome and Egypt. They don't think of the United States. And yet, I do I do believe that we have antiquity here as well that hasn't been discovered and it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of it's exciting to think of the fact that you know atlanteans may well have visited our shores may well have been here may well have mm-hmm. been the 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 white people with the blonde hair that, that the native americans speak of mm-hmm. um and sure. certainly the south americans so you know it's, it's yep. exciting to, to think about that aspect I, I i just noticed that we're really getting short on time here and and I want to remind people the name of your book it's the empires of Atlantis the origins of ancient civilizations and mystery traditions throughout the ages it will be available in January but you can pre-order it now so um, you know please check out um, Amazon for it it's on Amazon Um, it's it's a fascinating book and certainly your material is incredible and and a great many of your charts are are fascinating. You, you kind of want to spend a lot of time with them because they really do um, tickle your imagination for sure. And your website is um, Marco. Yes, it's Marco dot Vigato. Oh, yeah, yes, okay. yes. Yeah. 
Yes, it's uh, www.marcovigato.com. Okay, is the, and you have a personal blog as well, I believe. Yes, yes, as well. So uh, I have a blog. It's called uh, Uncharted Ruins, where I talk more about uh, my my expeditions, my personal explorations uh, in, the, in different parts of the world. Uh, mostly, uh, well, uh, at least like for for the last uh, few years, and uh, mostly in uh, in Mexico and Central America. But I also cover a number of other uh, like subjects, uh, like uh, Middle Eastern archaeology and like. Europe, uh, polygonal walls, and like Cambodia, like different parts of the world. Well, they they found a lot of elongated skulls in South America, I believe, haven't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. In, uh, in Peru, there's also something I, I talk about. I have the opportunity of visiting uh, pretty hundreds of archaeological sites around the world, uh, and like visit Peru multiple times. Uh, and uh, uh, I've seen like many many of these uh, like sites and the, the, the evidence uh, for the lost civilization for myself. Well, I think you know. Also, you've spoken in the book about tunnels underground that were all over the place too, where like like mm-hmm. uh, Darankuyu, where where they have like thirteen levels, and yeah. and um, there are there are many different places that that have these unexplained tunnels and that would hold thousands of people and uh they yeah. can't figure out why and uh yeah, which is again connected that, to this idea of survival from from a global yeah. cataclysm on the one hand uh, you, you have like these like underground spaces that might have service shelters from a global cataclysm and so uh, you find it pretty much throughout the world like this idea of tunnels subterranean cities well, I think the places where I find that, that, if I had to bet, would be the the most spiritual people that that had stayed true to the cause, so to speak, would would be Tibet, in the Himalayas, and and the monasteries there that 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 seem to be untouched by time, which are really quite amazing. And um, you know, if, if I had Many lifetimes, I would certainly be, you know, going around too. I, it, it, it's a lot to try to cram into one lifetime, but you're doing a great job. Um, so once once the book is out, will you be will you be doing another one, or is this certainly yeah a yeah book? absolutely absolutely yeah this is a this is just a let's say more 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 of an introduction. It's a it really just a, provides an overall framework uh, of. Uh, um, what they would they picture, what they describe is the evolution of um, Atlantean civilization over, over thousands of years. So, um, uh, part of the reason why I wrote that book is that I was very dissatisfied with hypotheses that really picture Atlantis as just a point in time event, almost a civilization that uh, was, was destroyed in a, in a day and night. Whereas, what they show is that its influence continued for thousands and thousands of years, maybe even to, to this day. Uh, so this is just like the first. Uh, um, it's, it's really an introduction to to a very complex subject. Uh, I'm definitely planning on writing uh, more right now. I'm writing. I'm, I'm working on a book that's going to talk uh, more about uh, um, the Americas and specifically about like Central America and uh, and South America and the cultures that developed in this region and their relationship. To, to Atlantis and this idea of a lost civilization, 
and uh, and then I'm going to focus on different parts of the world, just analyzing and exploring the legacy of uh, this lost civilization, both in terms of the monumental legacy as well as the more uh, like cultural and spiritual legacy they left behind. Well, you know, it's not actually a lost civilization if all of us have a part of us in us. It's mm-hmm. just scattered. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's that's a very important realization, right? It's not. A, it's not really a lost civilization, you see, like so much of it uh, still survives uh, to to this day. We might not realize that, uh, but we we are really, and that's, that's really like the conclusion of my book, uh, we are really that new Atlantean civilization that's been in the making for, for thousands of years since the younger Greek Catholic. And so it's, it's really up to us, in a way, to, to bring back that, lost golden age that that's a beautiful way to end the show and um i want to thank you so much for being here and and i want to thank you for your book because it is a spectacular book and i hope everybody buys it and and eats it up the way i did so thank you again thank you so for much being Barbara. tonight oh my pleasure totally I want to thank everybody for being with us and uh this will be up on youtube later on or, no, tomorrow. Um, and please check it out. Check out the other shows that are up there, too. And if you like what you see, please subscribe, because that's how we know that you're listening. Have a good one, everybody. Good